Hmm. I was kind of a small guy, late bloomer. I didn't grow until I was pretty much a senior in high school. Didn't have anyone knocking at my door. Welcome to the Fred Opie Show, where you learn how to make a difference on and off the field. I'm your host, Fred Opie, an athlete turned author, producer, professor, and editor. I use my story and the stories of others to help you figure out what your gifts are, find the right places and activities to develop them, and give you a plan to give, save, and spend your money and time wisely. John Hopkins alum and Hall of Famer Brendan Schneck is our guest today. He is a native of Syosset, New York. Brendan earned All-American honors at two positions, attack and midfield, and at two schools, United States Naval Academy and John Hopkins. He also played on two U.S. national teams. Many consider Schneck one of the greatest players of all time. He was named to the NCAA's 25th anniversary team in 1985. We unpack his lacrosse journey today on the Fred Opie Show. Before our interview today, I decided to share an editorial on the recent college admission scandal. The news hits close to home for me as a former student-athlete, parent, college professor, and host of a show that talks about an elite sport, lacrosse, school selection, and paying for school. An online article in the Chronicle of Higher Education reports that some college coaches have been charged by federal prosecutors for their alleged role and selling their admission slots to non-athletes. The article goes on to say, quote, Wait, coaches influence admissions? Close quote. Wake up, folks. This has been going on for a long time. To be a successful college coach, you have to have a good working relationship with your institution's admissions office. Successful college coaches, particularly the assistant coaches, work their tails off to find the best student-athletes who, who can qualify to be admitted to their institutions. Then they coach and mentor them in the best situations for four years so that those student-athletes which they recruited are successful on and off the field while they're on campus and so they are ready to make an important contribution after they graduate and leave campus. In the worst situations, you have underpaid head and assistant coaches at some elite institutions who are under pressure to succumb to the temptation to take bribes and sell their influence with the admissions office for cash. I see several contributing factors to the scandal that is unpacking in front of us now as it relates to coaches and college sports. First, the temptation is much stronger for underpaid and overworked coaches in non-revenue sports like lacrosse. Second, as a culture, we have come to overvalue college degrees and made them more of a status symbol than a predictor of one's future earnings. Third, And related, our current federal student loan program has unintentionally increased college applications, which has led not only to the scandal, but to an even bigger scandal, which I equate to the subprime mortgage scandal of the early 2000s, and ultimately the crash of the market in 2008, a scandal that led to the largest economic downturn in this country since the Great Depression. No one wants to talk about the students who take out $10,000, $20,000, and $30,000 in student loans to attend colleges they cannot afford, who must pay back student loans when they fail or drop out of school or after they graduate. One way or another, they leave college campus in an economic condition which best can be described as debt peonage or servitude. The most important tool in building wealth is your income, and when you leave college with student loans, your income is severely damaged. And the sad thing about it is many have paid large sums of money for college degrees that in many instances will not provide a justifiable return on investment. 
because they choose to earn a degree that is not marketable after they have completed their studies. This is how I sum up what we have learned in the latest scandal. Teens who have the grades and test scores to get into the school of their choice can't afford to go there, so they take out large amounts of student loans, which turn them into modern-day indigent servants for four to seven years. Elites have children who can afford to go to high-status schools but don't have the GPA or test scores to get into those schools, so they rig the system in their favor. In this country, a country I love, too many of us are overpaying for school. Schools have become yet another status symbol in a society in which people are purchasing what they think will provide them with security, peace, and a good night's sleep. Admissions to a great college just won't do that. Do you know what school your mechanic, teacher, dentist, or the person doing your taxes attended? I don't, and I don't care, so long as they do their job and do it well. Now, on to the interview with Brendan Schneck. Tell me about your parents. Were they athletes? My dad was a tennis player, and I learned later on in life that he also had played lacrosse at Holy Cross. What about your mom? Was she an athlete? She was a dancer. Are your parents both from Syosset? See, my mom was from Jamaica, Jamaica, Queens. And my father was from Jackson Heights, which is also in Queens. Do you know how they met? My mother was a secretary. They met through work. She had 10 kids, of which I'm the second youngest. My brother Lance is the youngest, who also played with me at Hopkins. We were a year apart. We shared the same room growing up. We probably fought at least twice every day. Consequently, we had a lot of the same friends. My friends were his friends, his friends were my friends. My theory, that is the youngest who tend to be the best because they're just trying to keep up with the older siblings. As it worked out in our family, it was a, a girl, a boy, then four girls, and then there was four boys at the end. And everybody was playing a sport. We'd always compete in the backyard for something. I subscribe to your theory. Your older siblings, any other Division One athletes among them? Brother that played soccer at St. Michael's College. Another brother that played football at Duke. And then Lance and I. He started at Delphi. And then uh, we decided to go to Hopkins together. Do you have any idea who started lacrosse in the town of Syosset? Lacrosse was just coming onto the scene. Actually, I was introduced to the sport from my brothers. Syosset had just started a team in the early 70s. That's how it came about. I mean, the wooden sticks were just going away and the plastics were just being invented in that time period. What sports did you play in high school besides lacrosse? Football. I was a defensive back. Hmm. I was kind of a small guy. I didn't really start growing. I was a late, late bloomer. I didn't grow until I was pretty much a senior in high school. Played with a lot of heart. What schools did you consider? What coaches recruited you? In my senior year, I really didn't have anyone knocking at my door. The Navy recruiter came to the school, and I sat down with them, and there, my route there would be to go to the prep school first, and then I would be able to get into the academy. And that's kind of the choice that I wound up taking. Everybody else wasn't really interested, or, you know, and I was trying to see if I could get some sort of a scholarship to pay for my schooling. Really, I wasn't on their radar. I think they came to see somebody else at the school, 
and uh, they said anybody else was really interested. I went down. I listened to the guy's, you know, his pitch. At first, I was kind of a turnoff because I wasn't really military-oriented. It was like, uh, well, I didn't really have a whole lot of choices if I didn't want to have to pay for schooling. That's the, the route that I took. That's really how it happened. I didn't really have, like, a Maryland or a Syracuse or anybody else like that that was really interested. I went with Navy. Did you go down to visit the academy, meet Coach Slaza? Nope. Didn't meet anybody. I really hadn't started playing until I was in ninth grade. And I had gone to two high schools, too. So I had gone to Holy Family High School for ninth and tenth grade, which is now St. Anthony's. Then I transferred and went to Syosset High School for two years, which was 10th and 11th. It was not on anybody's radar. We had one guy from Syosset got recruited to Maryland. That was Eddie Prey. There's so many people who I interview like you. Your teammate, Mark Greenberg, he said Virginia and Hopkins recruited him. And that was it. The Hopkins thing was kind of like uh, a Hopkins alum saw him, told Chick, come down, check the guy out. He came down, check the guy out, and boom, that was it. <laughs> you know, you're talking <laughs> one of the best players of all time, and that's his story. This is my theory, Brendan. 5% of the lacrosse population who is having every coach beat down their door, and they have all the scholarship offers uh, available to them. But that's not normal. I agree with you 100% that I didn't really get into lacrosse until I was in ninth grade. There is hope. I mean, it, it, depending on how hard you want to work at something, for me, it wasn't work. It was always, I, I really loved the game, so I always just wanted to get better. There's hope. Go off to the prep school up in Rhode Island? Yes. Tell me what happens to you physically, what happens to you intellectually that makes a difference. They utilize the prep school to get a lot of their athletes in because, as you know, you can only be nominated by a congressman or a senator, and they only have one. So if they can't get you in that way, you have to go to the prep school, and then what happens is you graduate from the prep school, you have the president has unlimited amount of appointments. That's how they get their athletes, a lot of their athletes, in that they can't get in right away. So what you had at the prep school was you had a group of guys from the regular Navy that were already in the service that were officer material, they thought, and then you have your athletes. We had football players, basketball players, you name it. When we came up short, we had two guys from Bay City, Michigan, Larry Kulinski and Bart Nixon, they, those guys never were exposed to the game. We got them to come out for the lacrosse team. Kowinski wound up being the captain of the Navy football team. He was a fullback. He was our. Oh my taught him how to face off. He couldn't keep up once we got to the Naval Academy because his stick work wasn't there. And, of course, the demands of the football team mm -hmm. held up. But there was a case where we were using other athletes to supplement what we had that were, were up there mm -hmm. that were playing lacrosse. Mm -hmm. So it was... It was a fun time. It really was a fun time. I still hadn't seen the Academy, and I was flying by the seat of my pants. I had no other person to rely on that actually had done this that I knew of that had gone through, you know, to the Naval Academy. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I was just kind of going down this road and seeing where it was taking me. The guys in the lacrosse team were great guys. Most of them I'm, I'm still friends with today. It's, it's, been a, it's a different kind of thing when you go through something as, you know, intense as yeah. that uh, first year at the Naval Academy. You yeah. kind of band together, mm -hmm. and it's us-against-them type of a mentality. By coincidence, 
I wound up in the exact same company as Jeff Long. So he was an upperclassman, and I was a plebe. He had total control of my well-being at the academy. So I had to give a chow call or something like that. He'd come out and say, get out of here. I'm done with you. He could do it because he was an upperclassman, so yeah. he had the rank. It also worked against me because when he left, our company officer got filled in as to what Midshipman Long was doing. All I can tell you is that he had that place wired. He showed me all the ins and outs, and I'm always grateful for that because, I don't know, it would have been a, a lot tougher on me in that first year if he wasn't around. He, he's my, like my big brother. He looked after me. What was it like to play for Dick Slaza? We weren't always on good terms. He was kind of a uh, real old-school coach. He felt that if you played in his program for four years, you deserved to play. So not necessarily did we always have the best guys on the field. To me, that was a problem when you're trying to compete. It's hard enough to compete at one of the service academies as it is, and now we're, we're kind of like doing it with one hand tied behind our backs. I would have problems with him in that area. As a freshman, he didn't want to really play me, but I was the second-leading scorer on the team. Slaza and I kind of banged heads a lot. Was that ultimately the reason why you decided to transfer? That was one of the reasons, for sure. The main reason was, if you go to the Naval Academy, if you go to your first class of your junior year, you acquire the five-year commitment. Okay. So I stayed there for two full years, and I was going back and forth. It was a very hard decision for me to leave because I had made such good friends there, and I just knew that I wasn't sold after two years that this was going to be a great career for me. When you're junior year, they're in total control. They decide what they want to do with you. They can put you in the reserve, they can put you back in the Navy, or they can let you go. It means you really must know what you're doing if you're going to get involved in that. So you transfer to Hopkins. Did they offer you a scholarship? My sophomore year at Navy, I was a first-team All-American attackman. So I was a commodity now. So I talked to my brother Lance, who was at Adelphi at the time, and he was looking to get out of Adelphi. So I said, look, why don't you look around, see what you find out. And a fellow by the name Jim Amon was the recruiting coach for Hopkins. Lance said he was interested, and Jim Amon went to a couple of games up here on the island, saw Lance play, offered him a scholarship to Hopkins, and then I picked up the phone and called in and said, I'd like to come to Hopkins. And that's pretty much how it happened. They made it happen from there. Did Lance earn All-American honors his first year at Adelphi? Yes. They were a Division II team, and they, had, they won the national championship the next year, I think, or that, that year. And Hopkins, they don't call it a scholarship, it's a, it's a grant, okay? So what they did is they gave us, you know, a certain amount of money for the tuition, then there was a little money for the room and board. So all that kind of helped out. Most part, yeah, they, they picked up a lot of them, the, the real financial part of it. So we were able to do it together. You guys both got out of school without any student loans. Right. It's a tricky thing to do because today, well, everyone loves to talk about scholarships. You know and I know that they're, they're partial scholarships. They'll take one scholarship and whack it up four ways. So you and your brother get there. You have to sit out the first year. What did you declare as your major when you got to Hopkins? Fully focused on engineering at Naval Academy by necessity. 
for a history course, they had a naval sea power. Certain things they would accept and certain things they wouldn't accept. I wound up being a political science major, minor in business. Now that you've been out at school for quite some time, what would you make a required undergraduate course if you were given that liberty to do so? I would like to see a course that shows you how to exist on your own. Learn how to open a bank account. Learn about credit cards. Learn how to do your laundry. Learn how to cook. Basic survival things that you need once you get out of school. Learning to be independent. The show will be right back. For related content on negotiating the world of school and sports, visit our website at fredopi.com. The books start with your gift, which is my lacrosse memoir. To me, I think the best chapter in the book is the last one in which I talk about how to handle your finances. And I tell you about all the knucklehead things I did, including all the money I spent on lacrosse. Yes, I'm flying out to this, I'm doing that, and, and don't got a pot to pee in. I talk about how to handle your money, how to have a, a budget. Every dollar is allocated to something. We talk about how to handle your finances, how to plan for college so they can go to college without debt career advice and part lacrosse memoir and every dumb thing I've ever done I'm open about it because I don't want you making the same stupid mistakes that I did the book is available in digital form as an ebook and audiobook we are the sum total of the people we spend time with and the books we read be a difference maker right now and purchase two or more paperback copies of start with your gift give them away and make a positive impact on someone's life Welcome back to this edition of The Fred Opie Show, unpacking history to positively impact the future. Tell me what it was like to play for Chick, and then tell me about Chick and his relationship with Freddie Smith. If you're not in the Hopkins lacrosse community, most of us never heard of Freddie Smith. Interesting character. Chick was one of the most intense coaches that I've ever played for. He was a gambler. He liked to gamble. He didn't accept mediocrity. He blew up more All-Americans than I can recall. Kids that were coming there, all everything at their high school, and they'd step on that field, and he could just completely bring them down to the ground level again. He won three national championships in a row and was never voted Coach of the Year. That tells me that he had a few enemies. That's the way he coached. He was in your face, screaming at you, threatening to tell you that you'll never play for him again if you screwed up. Now, Freddie, on the other side, he was like the father figure. I didn't really get that much interaction with Freddie because Freddie was the defensive coordinator. If a team scored a goal, Chick would run down to Freddie and say, your defense stinks. (laughs) But they had a very good, close relationship after you got chewed out by Chick, he would come over and say, and say, listen, it's not really that bad. Don't worry about it. And that's why the guys all gravitated to Freddie. Always had a light spirit about him, too. You needed that balance. Those two guys working together was a great balance. It sounds like the classic yin yin yang Yes. I always felt when I played with Chick, you were prepared for every game. He would break down the game along with the other coaches. We knew what the tendencies were. We knew certain things what other teams wanted to do and what we wanted to do. 
he was very prepared all the time, and consequently the team was prepared all the time. And I felt we had confidence going into games. Sure, there are times when things didn't go right, and he would explode, but everything was taken in stride. And I went to Hopkins not knowing the coach. I look back at these things and say to myself, oh my God, I had no idea what I was doing. Mm. <laughs> I never fully appreciated Coach Ciccaroni until after I left Hopkins. That he was in his 30s and died when he was in his 40s, heart attack. Who gets the green light in athletics and in the business world and why? Do you earn that? Say Vince Lombardi-like coach is what Chick sounds like. What did it take to win his confidence? They're given the green light through repetition and trust. There was a trust that was developed. He knew that I would do everything I could, and you're going to do it for the best reasons. You're going to make good decisions. So that all has to be trust. You have to, you have to build a foundation where he understands that I'm going to try to make the best play I can. I understand what we're trying to do. And we're on the same page. And that kind of goes with preparation. There are guys that if you missed a pass, that would be the end of it. He would chew you up and down. You'd sit on the bench. If I dropped the ball, I would be giving a little bit more forgiveness because I'd be trying to do more than than I was supposed to be trying to do. Now, you talked about confidence. How much of it is coaching, behavioral, or innate? You have to have confidence in yourself. The only way you build confidence is by doing something over and over again so that it's rote and you know what you're doing. So you're prepared. Now, if you have confidence in yourself, that comes through to your teammates as well. It's built through hard work and failure. You fail and then you succeed afterwards. Now you've got the confidence. You know what you have to do. That is definitely learned because confidence comes and goes. Sometimes you think you're the best guy out there, and all of a sudden a defenseman comes along and, and strips you of the ball. Now your confidence is shaken. You really have to just believe in yourself, and the way you believe in yourself is getting yourself prepared. Tommy Lasorda, the former manager of St. Louis Cardinals, said stress is a lack of preparation. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me your reflections on some of the, the Hopkins teammates. What about Mark? What made Mark a great defenseman? He was ahead of his time. He is the prototype defenseman today. Six foot five, lanky, tall, rangy, great footwork. You really had to work to get him to make a mistake. He wasn't the fastest guy. Very rarely made a mistake. What about Jeff Cook? Why was he such a great attackman? When he was a freshman, Mark Greenberg used to beat him all the time. And his confidence level was at an all-time low. I mean, he just didn't feel good about himself. He's on the depth chart on their attack. He was like third or fourth down. And this was his freshman year. And he had come in with, you know, a lot of high expectations, like a lot of the players do at Huck. You get to that Division One, that, that game is a lot faster. Everything's happening. Where to go? But what happened was... I would work with him on his confidence. I would just try to talk to him and keep his his self-confidence where it had to be. Pulling him aside, talking to him, trying to explain to him what he did wrong, you know, how you go about attacking a defender. He's one of the hardest working guys that I can think of. 
he would hit the weight room religiously after practice every day. He made himself a better player. By the time his freshman to his sophomore year, when he started to drive to the cage, it would be very difficult to stop him. His life was cut short, unfortunately. He died a few years ago. No, it was very sad. How much did you overlap with Mike O'Neill at Hopkins? Michael was finishing up when I was just getting there. I was sitting out that year that they played. What were the intangibles that made Mike O'Neill so great? Very athletic. He was diving. He gave 110% when he was on that field. He was all over the place, riding. He did all the little things that, that a good attackman have to do, and he was exceptional at it. He just went about his business. You could have a superpower. What would you want as your superpower and why? I'd like to be invisible. That I could come and go as I please. I could actually hear what people really think about me. <laughs> if you could have dinner, three people, dead or alive, who would you invite to dinner? I think the first guy would be my father. He passed away. I'd be interested to see what he thinks about how I turned out. It's easy to get lost in a family of ten kids. Another guy would be Warren Buffett because of his proudness in the financial area. I would love to sit down and pick his brain and hear what he... He's a self-made guy, too, which is very interesting. LT, Lawrence Taylor. Ooh. That would be a, an experience for me. When he was playing the wild man, I wanted to see the wild man. I'd love to sit down with him. How have your eating, drinking and working out habits changed since your first year at the Naval Academy? At the Naval Academy, everything's taken care of. I mean, you just show up your, at your training at your table, and that was one of the big motivations was to, if you made the varsity team, you got to sit at, with the varsity guys during your season. So mm -hmm. if, if you were on the varsity lacrosse team, you got to sit with the varsity lacrosse guys and have dinner with them. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a totally different thing when you have to sit with your company. If I wanted anything at the table, I had to ask for it in Morse code. If you were on a varsity sport, you got to eat at the training table. That was, you know, you got a lot more food, a lot more relaxed attitude. You mm -hmm. could just go there, be yourself. You didn't have to be on, on guard all the time. At the Naval Academy, like I said, the meals were all planned out. They have nutritionists there and everything. Hopkins was a different story. You know, once again, Lance and I were living together. Lots of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and hot dogs and that kind of thing. And today, I have a daughter who's a vegan, and my kids are all into healthy outdoor activities. So that has had an effect on me as far as cutting back on things that I really like to eat. I've changed a little bit. But I'm still pretty much out there at night drinking. Fitness, I try to, I try to uh, it's a lot harder. It's something that I made a part of my routine every day because mm -hmm. it's so easy to get out of shape. I never was one to be out of shape. I try to stay with it. I mix it up. I'm just trying to be fit. And my wife is very much into fitness. You know, she's running or doing the... Her, uh, classes every day, so it kind of keeps me on my toes as well. I had to stop running. I got all like a bunch of uh, old lacrosse players. You get all your all your old history, your your injuries come back to haunt you. And uh, my knees, so I, I, mean, I can't take that pounding anymore. What I try to do is the bike, the elliptical, or 
do the stair climbing to try to keep things a little bit easier on the pounding. I just can't do that anymore. I miss it because I used to love to go for a run, but I'd probably get back to it if I can. Mm-hmm. And you do, sounds like you do some free weights too? Yeah. Yeah, I'll go to the, I just try to get to the gym and I have my own little routine that I do and it takes me an hour. But I notice if I don't go, I don't feel good about myself. Three books that you just found riveting. Shoe Dog. That is a book of, of the guy who started Nike. I found that to be a very interesting book. Who Killed Lincoln? You know, The Killing of Kennedy. Bill O'Reilly and Martin Dugard? Yes, right. Last question. I want you to write a book of success and seven, eight chapters, whatever you're, you're comfortable with. And I define success on the show as having the most positive impact that you can have on the world around you. Tell us the title of three of the chapters in your book of success. Book of success. Always be prepared. Treat people the way you'd like to be treated. And keep in mind on a day-to-day basis how much you have to be thankful for. I will make sure that you get a link to the podcast. You now have your oral history that you can share with family and friends. It goes all the way back to your parents. I hope that's something that you would cherish. That's a wrap for this show. Thanks for listening. To hear more content like it, go to fredopi.com. If you have questions about advertising and sponsoring this show, contact us at fdopie at gmail.com. That's fdopie at gmail.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. The best way to support the podcast is to tell a friend. Share the show on Facebook and Twitter or send them to our website at fredopi.com.